0: The Lord be with you. Welcome to Thin Places, the podcast channel of St. Aidan's Anglican Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. I'm Father Lee, the pastor here at St. Aidan's, and I want to invite you to join me here each week as we join together to share common prayer, common worship, and common life. And just as the streams feed the trees on their banks till they pour, So may my life be to all those who share this wilderness road. Welcome back to the Apocalypse Revisited. I'm Father Lee, and I'm going to be leading us in our discussion today. Before we begin if you have just joined us in our podcast series we're walking step-by-step through the book of Revelation to try to understand the truth that God is conveying to us now when I say step by step I don't mean that we're gonna walk chapter by chapter and verse by verse through it but rather we're going to take very clear very concise and very intentional steps to understand what kind of book Revelation is and what kinds of truths God is trying to communicate to his church in the words that he communicated to his church then through the apostle John. So if you haven't listened to it already, I would ask you to go back and re-listen to the earlier podcast, the introductory podcast, so that you can be up to speed in what we're going to be talking about today. So last week, when we began our discussion, rather than jumping right into the book of Revelation, we began by asking this question What is biblical genre? When we say the word genre, what do we mean by that? And we said that the Bible's not a book, that it's a library. The whole point of us getting together is so that we can read Revelation well, so that we can open up Revelation to, to read it in a way that we've never encountered it before. But to do that, we need to understand what kind of book it is, because we wouldn't grab a book at random off of our bookshelf and read it just like any other random book on our bookshelf. And so the biblical genres are extremely important. The books of law are different than the books of wisdom, and those are different from the the books of the Gospels and the way that the, the apostles are writing their epistles to the churches. Each of these books is a different sort of book. Revelation is unique because it's a type of literature called apocalyptic literature. And we don't have apocalyptic literature in Western culture. That's not a way that we tell stories. That's not a way that we communicate to each other. So today what I want us to do is to unpack very intentionally what we mean by apocalyptic literature so that when we begin our discussion over the next couple of weeks uh, diving into the book of Revelation we can make sure that we are understanding the way that John is telling this story and the way that the, the the Lord is trying to speak to us what truths is God trying to convey to his people in this particular way so when we say apocalypse What do we mean by that? Of course, in our culture, when we hear that word apocalypse, we immediately think of the end of the world. But that's not what an apocalypse is. That's not what it means in Greek. Apocalypse in Greek means an unveiling. It means a revelation. So in most of our Bibles, that's why it's referred to as the book of Revelation. This is the revelation of St. John. Or maybe the revelation according to St. John or the revelation to St. John. There's lots of ways that we can understand what that means. So before we begin, in the link, in, uh, in the description of this podcast, there's a link to the notes for this particular study, and those notes are going to be very important. I'm going to be referring to them because they contain some diagrams that are going to help us to wrap our heads around what apocalyptic literature is and what it looks like. So what is an apocalypse? What is an apocalyptic event? What's an apocalyptic book? An apocalypse is a vision. The author is communicating to us a vision that the author has seen. And that vision is filled with images and with symbols. And those images and symbols are rooted very concretely in the culture of the person who's having the vision. And what that vision does is it communicates a much larger story to us. So when we sit down to read a book like Revelation, we're not going to read it the same way that we would read Judges or Daniel or Matthew because it doesn't communicate stories in the same ways that those authors are communicating the truth that they have encountered in the person of Jesus Christ and through the Spirit of the Living God. When we read the Apocalypse of Saint John we're not gonna read it like it's a history book or it's a collection of sayings or it's a book of pronunciations that God is making. Instead, when we read the book of Revelation, we should approach it the same way that we do when we read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is an excellent example of of what using images to convey theological truths looks like. We can understand it as an allegory, but C.S. Lewis's book is much larger than just an allegory. He's communicating concepts and ideas that are much larger than the simple images that he chooses to use. Apocalyptic literature is the same. Somebody has a vision and then sits down to write out, to communicate that vision to people who are important to him. In this case, he's writing it to several churches, a number of churches, at least seven, but probably seven clusters or seven communities of churches that the author is writing to, to convey to them this important vision of God's cosmic story, of God's reality, the, the, the world as it really is, communicating that idea to them using images and symbols that they will understand in order to communicate these very important but oftentimes very complex and very confusing ideas I'd like to begin with a quote from a book called reversed thunder if you're interested In learning more about the book of Revelation and in appreciating the book of Revelation on a much deeper level I want to highly recommend that you pick up the book reversed Thunder this is written by Eugene Peterson in his introduction he says this a few paragraphs into the revelation The adrenaline starts rushing through the arteries of my faith, and I'm on my feet, alive and tingling. It's impossible to read the revelation and not have my imagination aroused. The revelation both forces and enables me to look at what is spread out right before me and to see it with fresh eyes. It forces me, because being the last book in the Bible, I can't finish the story apart from it. It enables me. Because by using unfamiliar language of apocalyptic vision, my imagination is called into vigorous play. In spite of those obvious benefits and necessary renewals, there are many people who stubbornly refuse to read it or, which is just as bad, refuse to read it on its own terms. These are the same people who suppress fairy tales because they're brutal and fill children's minds with material for nightmares, who balderize Chaucer because his books are too difficult. They avoid the demands of either imagination or intellect. If they can't read a book with a quick skim of the eye trained under the metronome of speed reading, they abandon the effort and slump back into passivity before cartoons and commercials. But... For people who are fed up with such bland fare, the revelation is a gift, a work of intense imagination that pulls its readers into a world of sky battles between angels and beasts, lurid punishments and glorious salvations, kaleidoscopic vision, and cosmic song. It is a world in which children are instinctively at home, and in which adults, by becoming little children, recapture an elemental involvement in the basic conflicts and struggles that permeate moral existence, and then go on to discover again the soaring adoration and primal affirmations for which God made us. That's the purpose of John's revelation, to call us to open our eyes and see the world around us, to see the things that God is doing all around us, to see the kind of world that God is at work restoring and the ways that God is restoring his creation. That's the purpose of the book is to open our eyes. But the temptation for us is to hear the confusing images and just to sort of set them aside and say, well, that's not really important. Or we hear those images and we see those pictures that he describes and we invent explanations for them that are completely foreign to St. John. So who is St. John? Scholars, even at at the very beginning of the church, were divided over who exactly St. John was. Most of them assume that he is the Apostle John, who also wrote uh, the epistles that John wrote. Some other people suggest that it might have been uh, been another, uh, another church leader at the time. For us, we're going to assume that this is St. John the Divine, that he is the Apostle, and that he's writing this letter. We're going to make that assumption because that is what the majority of scholars have suggested and because that is the, the general um, belief of the church. And the reality is that whether it is that John or another church leader doesn't change what God is communicating to us in, in, these, in, in these important chapters. What God is trying to communicate to us is the same message that he's communicating to the churches who received this apocalyptic letter from St. John. That God is alive, that God is at work all around us, that God is overcoming evil and that God is right now calling us back to himself to join with the whole of creation in praising God for the love that we have seen revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. So where was this book written? The book was written on an island called Patmos. Now sometimes when we talk about John being in exile on the island of Patmos, we think about uh a deserted island that that he was just you know shoved off on this deserted island he had to eke out a living in in a cave like a hermit uh, but that's not the the truth about how exile works at least not how exile worked in the roman world in the Roman world, there were places that were at the boundary markers of of the empire, places that weren't the empire, where people could be sent who were deemed to be a problem for the state or for local leaders, and people could be sent to those places. And the island of Patmos is one of those places. It's in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. It is a, a rocky, deserted isle, uh, but what we know from archaeology uh, and and I, I should be clear there there are people living on Patmos right now. Pat, Patmos is, is is still inhabited, uh, but at this time Patmos was in, inhabited by many people who who had to live in exile. It was a, a, a thriving community with uh, with with trade that came in from other places, uh, with with lots of fishing and and work on farms. It wasn't uh, Saint John by himself. Likely he had a community of faith who lived there on the island with him uh, and who enabled him to send out the letters that he needed to send out to communicate with the churches that he had founded all throughout Asia Minor. Now it's further interesting that John's Apocalypse is written in a language that scholars describe as Hebraized Greek. Hebraized Greek. What that means is that it's Greek but it's filled with idioms and it's filled with types that all come from Jewish literature. Now, why is that important? Well, John is writing sometime around uh, the year 80 AD, and there is upheaval all throughout the Jewish communities in the Roman Empire at this time. There's been a major rebellion. This rebellion has been put down, and finally the, the temple is destroyed and, and people are scattered. The entire uh, makeup of the Jewish faith is, is unraveling. And so in the midst of all of this turmoil and all of this chaos, John is praying, and he has a vision. Now, what do we mean by vision? A lot of times when we hear that word vision, we think about maybe somebody is sick and having a dream, or maybe we think that somebody is, uh, is uh, maybe not mentally well. Uh, They may be seeing things that aren't there. But when when we talk about apocalyptic literature, we're not talking about that kind of a vision. What we're referring to is what Christians historically have called a mystical experience. What do I mean by a mystical experience? Well, it's this. The vision takes the viewer outside of the normal bounds of perception. Now, I say outside, not separate from. John doesn't go into a trance and then have a vision. John is still conscious. He says that while he was praying, he began to have this vision. His eyes were opened. We hear that phrase over and over again in Scripture, that his eyes are opened. That's what happens. John, in the midst of prayer, in the midst of worship, has his eyes open, and he's allowed to see the world in a new way. He's submerged into a deeper vision of reality. But the vision that he has is still in the context of his own worldview. And so what he does as he retells this story is he retells the story of the vision that he's had using images and symbols and idioms and ideas from his own cultural background to communicate the things that he's seen, to retell the story of his encounter with God. In the recommended reading section, I've included a link to a seminary course at Asbury Seminary that is on the book of Revelation. It's taught by Dr. Mulholland, and he uses a fantastic analogy to describe what this is like. If you imagine where you're sitting right now, listening to this discussion, You are surrounded by images and voices that you can't perceive. Think about that just for a second. You right now where you're sitting are surrounded by voices and images that you are unable to perceive. But what if someone in the room with you turned on a radio? You would suddenly then be able to hear the voices that were all around you all the time. Or what if someone in the room were to turn on a television? You would suddenly see and hear the images that are all around you all the time. Or if you were to take your phone out of your pocket and turn on the screen and flip over to one of the apps that you're using, you would then see the images that are around you all the time. You see, the, 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 there is normal perception, and then outside of that normal perception is this visionary perception, okay? But the author's consciousness doesn't change. The, the, the thing that changes is the author's perception. The author is allowed to see something beyond what he normally sees. He's given a new sort of antenna to perceive the world that is around him. And then what he sees has to be retold. It has to be conveyed in some way. He sees this story and he has to tell somebody about it. So how does St. John do that? How does St. John tell the story of this incredible encounter that he's had? Well, he does it by creating a story world. He uses images and icons and idioms and symbols from his own world to retell this experience that he's had of perceiving the world around him in a completely new and unique way. But what are the images that he's drawing from? What is this this pool of image, this story world that he creates? Well, it. Includes images and symbols from the Old Testament. It includes images and symbols from the intertestamental period. It includes images and symbols from the Greco-Roman world. And it even includes some images and symbols that are unique to the Christian communities of the first century. If you think about, the world that you live in is filled with symbols that if someone a hundred years ago were to look at, they wouldn't understand them. Think about the way that memes work in in our culture. The idea of communicating intense messages in a handful of words, in in a couple of sentences. Those don't make any sense to people in in a culture then, and they likely won't make any sense to a culture in a hundred years. But we're talking right now about a book that's written in a style that we don't use, using symbols that we don't understand entirely, That aren't a part of our story world. They're not a part of our cultural language. And he's doing this from almost 2,000 years ago. Almost 2,000 years of cultural distance between us and the story that John is trying to tell. That's why it's so critically important for us to understand the genre, to understand what apocalyptic literature is, and to understand the kind of story that John's telling, because otherwise we see all of these images about seals, and trumpets, and monsters, and angels, and plagues, and punishments, and we can make up our own meanings and we can just attach them to all of those symbols because a lot of times those symbols have new meaning in our own culture and so we we attach our own meanings to those things and we can invent any kind of interpretation that we want to to read this book and if you don't believe me go online and look for Bible studies on the book of Revelation. Thumb through Amazon and look for books on the book of Revelation. Now I'm not recommending that you purchase those things. I I think that we need to push almost all of those things aside. I've got some excellent resources that are both scholarly and sober in the description of the podcast, so I would encourage you for further reading to go and examine those particular resources. But it's important that we understand going into this that John is writing and telling a story in a way that is completely foreign to our experience. And if we're going to understand what John is conveying, because this is so important, because this is God communicating to us what reality looks like. This is God summing up God's story and inviting us to find our own place in that story to find hope and healing and restoration and forgiveness. That if we miss out on this because we won't pause long enough to understand how John tells his stories, to understand the images that he's using, then we're going to miss out on what God is trying to communicate to us about his purpose for our life, his purpose for his church, his purpose for his creation, his purpose for the incarnation of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So much is at stake when we choose not to pause for a moment and understand what kind of book this is that we're reading. So how do we read Revelation? Well, it's important for us to notice that the book of Revelation is not an historical book, and it's not an imperial book. Now, it contains elements of those things. John is absolutely critiquing the political structure of his world. And he's absolutely telling us stories about God at work in creation. So he's doing those things. It contains elements of those things. But it's also not a predictive book. When God gives prophecy to his prophets, prophecy is God's word to a people or a place or a time. It's God speaking words through a a mediary to a specific group of people. So as we said before, it's not like reading the book of Judges where it's an historical story. And it's not like reading the book of Daniel where a prophet is critiquing the world around him. And it's not like reading Matthew. It's a story world like the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. It's filled with images and symbols that we need to understand. Eugene Peterson describes it in this way, St. John takes the old everyday things of creation and salvation, of Father, Son, and Spirit, of world, flesh, and devil, that we take for granted and forces us to look at them and experience them again, or maybe for the first time, in their reality. He wakes up our minds, he rouses our feelings, and he involves our senses. So what does John's story world look like? What does this story world look like? In the notes, you'll see at the bottom of the page, there are two pyramids. These two pyramids show the world of St. John. The story that John is telling is that these two worlds are colliding. There's a competition between these two worlds. Now, at the foundation of both of these worlds, both the redeemed order and the fallen order, you have a foundation, and the foundation of the redeemed order is heaven. This is the place where God dwells, but not only the place where God dwells, but it extends into The whole of creation, the places where God dwells, not just an ethereal, someday maybe off in the sky place, but the places where God is and God reigns are an extension of his rule. They're an extension of his kingdom. And so the redeemed order is founded upon the rule of heaven. Now, if you look on the other side of that, you have, in the fallen order, death and hell. Death is the the foundation, the, the founding principle for the fallen order in John's story world. And who's in charge? Well, in the redeemed order, God is in charge, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But, of course, if that is true about the redeemed order, then that means that there is, on the other side... An opposition. Now, it is not an equal and opposite opposition. John's story world doesn't ever suggest that to us. It just suggests that in the world where we live, we have a fallen order. It's founded upon death and hell, and the ruler of that fallen order is Satan, the one who opposes, the one who condemns. So what happens? Both of those orders, the redeemed order and the fallen order, have a story that they tell to us about the incarnation about the ruler at work in the world. And what does that look like? In the redeemed order, the incarnation, the working out of God's rule, is done through the Lamb. It's the Lamb who reigns. There are lots of images that are wrapped up in this idea of the lamb, and we'll get into those in a a later discussion. But on the other side of that, in the fallen order, you have the beast and the false prophets. Those are a physical manifestation and outworking of the rule of death and hell through the Satan, through the accuser, through the, the opposer. And then at the end or at the top of that, the pinnacle of those orders are the followers. The day-to-day, everyday living out of the fallen order or the redeemed order. In the redeemed order, it's the new Jerusalem. All of God's people make up the new Jerusalem. And they stand opposed to the fallen order. And the fallen order, John calls Babylon. The call of John all throughout the book of Revelation is a call to radical discipleship in the face of suffering, in the face of opposition, in the face of loneliness, in the face of fear, in the face of pain. The call is to radical discipleship, to be transformed into the image of the Lamb so that we can belong to God. How do we be faithful citizens of Jerusalem? in a fallen Babylon world. That is John's story world. And it's important for us to to point out that when he uses these images, when he uses these iconic pictures, that they're never simply photographs of something that's beyond the senses. He doesn't close his eyes and then see locusts with lion heads and scorpion tails. They're not just photographs of what's beyond, but they contain within them the possibilities and the limitations of the perceiving subject. Now, what do I mean by that? Whatever it is that John sees during these visions, he then tries to communicate, but he can only communicate in the strength that he has on his own and through the giftings and the, the movement of the Holy Spirit. The ideas and the concepts that John is transmitting to his fellow Christians in Patmos and in the churches in Asia Minor are still conveyed through John. God doesn't take over John and then have him transcribe something down. God gives images to John, and John communicates his experience, his ecstatic experience, his visionary experience, his mystical experience. He communicates that to the people who are the closest to him, to the people who are the most important to him, to the people that he loves. But they're not just photographs. They're they're never photographs of, of, of what he's encountered. Instead, he's trying to communicate to us and to them, what he's seeing so that we can, in faith, see those things in the world all around us. He's trying in some small way to give us an antenna to see the world in the way that he saw the world. And this is what visionaries and mystics have always done. If you go and read the the mystics of the Middle Ages, they tell the the stories in in these same ways. They use images and and ideas from this. We're we're calling it an image pool or a story world. They create their own story worlds. That's true if you read uh, uh, John of the Cross is is that way, Teresa of Avila, Teresa of Lisieux, When you read the works of Christians who have had these mystical, visionary experiences, this is the way that they communicate them. They communicate these intense experiences that they've had with God using symbols and images that aren't intended to be heard and understood as being photographs of what they saw, but rather to help you and I to experience what they've experienced to perceive those incredible revelations from God alongside them. Apocalyptic literature is a vision that's filled with culturally understood images and symbols that conveys a cosmic story or reality. A vision filled with images that tells God's story. That's what apocalyptic literature is. Now, if we understand what apocalyptic literature is, we can then begin moving on to start talking about what happens in the book of Revelation. Now, on the other side of the page, you'll notice that I have a breakdown of form. Now, the form that I have broken down here comes from a book by Father Stephen Smalley. Uh, This is a a, a fairly recent work. It's only about 15 years old. Uh, Father Smalley is an Anglican priest Uh, This one was published by InterVarsity Press, and the book is called The Revelation to John. Now, I have this in in the, the notes for this particular podcast, but I will warn you ahead of time that this is a fairly academic work. But this form is extremely useful in understanding, in, in getting an overview of what John's vision looked like. And in fact, there actually are probably several visions. We'll, we'll talk about the, the, the way that we understand his visions uh, a, a little bit further down the road when we begin really diving into what happens in the book of Revelation. Uh, but I feel like Father Smalley's work here is is extremely useful and it, it helps us to to understand the the structure of Revelation so that we can read it well. So he divides the book of Revelation up into two acts, and those inside those acts are seven sevens and six interludes. Each one of those sevens is followed by an interlude. There's a a break or a pause. There's a further communication about something that's not necessarily related to whatever that particular cluster of seven was. So in chapters one through three, John communicates seven oracles. And then he finishes by talking about what happens and what he sees and perceives in heaven's court. And then he sees seven seals that are opened up. And after those seven seals have been, have been opened up, he sees the church protected in the midst of suffering. The church is covered by the blood of the Lamb. And then there are seven trumpets. And at the end of those seven trumpets, there is a pause And then there's a long discussion about god being in control because there is a lot of things to be anxious about as we listen to the trumpets blast and so we just pause for a moment at the end of act one and listen to what it is to have god being in control now I don't want you to worry about memorizing all of these things or or, or anything like that right now. We're going to spend more time talking about Smalley's work. But I want us to have just in the back of our mind, I want us to have this idea. Two acts, seven sevens. Each of the sevens is followed by an interlude. So in Act 2, he moves on to seven signs. Those are, ver- those are chapters 12 through 14. And then in chapter 15, there's a new kind of exodus. God's people are led into a new promised land. And then seven bowls are poured out in chapter 16. And then we hear about the fall of Babylon. Yeah the fall of Babylon. This idea of Babylon keeps coming up over and over again because in John's story world, remember, there's this constant conflict, this collision between these two uh, these, these two worlds, the fallen order and the redeemed order, and they're constantly crashing against each other. And the question that John's people are asking, because John, at his, at his heart, he is a beautiful theologian. He's an incredible poet, but at his heart, John is a pastor. And so the words that he speaks are pastoral words. He's calling people to holiness. He's calling them to mutuality. He's calling them to love. He's calling them over and over again to worship and to peace. And so after these bowls are poured out, he reminds us that the end of the story is that the fallen order is fallen, that Babylon falls, that that's the end of the story. The end of the story is that Babylon doesn't win. That death and hell are cast down. That Satan is undone. That the beast and the false prophet are thrown over. The fallen order collapses. And then there are seven visions about what life in God's kingdom looks like. And all of that culminates with the story of the new creation and the seven prophecies. It's a beautiful, beautiful image. I want to close today by giving us some caveats as we move forward. You'll see those listed in the bottom of the show notes. The first caveat is that this book was written 2,000 years ago. It was written by a person who didn't speak a language that you and I are likely familiar with, who came from a culture that is extraordinarily different from our own. So because of the distance that we have, not just the distance in time, although we do ourselves an intense disservice if we forget that these stories are being communicated to us by a Jewish man living in exile in the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago. We don't understand what his life was like. We don't understand... Uh, what it was like for him to go day in and day out living on this island in the Mediterranean. We, we don't we, we, we can't enter into St. John's world. And because of that distance of, of language, that distance of culture, that distance of time, which we've talked about in previous podcasts about the importance of, of recognizing that Scripture comes to us from a very different culture. because of that, it is not going to be possible for us to grasp, all of the images that John uses. We're simply not going to be able to and we need to reconcile that with ourselves. There's not a mystery here for us to unravel. The only thing here for us to unravel is how we can prayerfully enter into the story world alongside John. So the first caveat is that we're not going to be able to grasp all of that imagery because of how far away from John we are. The second caveat is that finding parallels is not the same as interpreting images. John, in this book, will often use the same images because he's drawing from an image pool, but they don't always mean the same things. A seal and a bowl seem like they do the same things, but they're not doing the same things. And when the lamb shows up, It's not always going to be the same lamb, or it's not always going to be the lamb revealed in the same way. Images of blood and images of pain and images of violence, all of these things are going to be uh, recirculated in John's story because he is using a a pool of images that are available to him from the culture that he lives in. But just because we find parallels, that's not the same thing as finding an interpretation. Again, what we need to get away from is thinking that the book of Revelation is a code book. It's not a code book. There's nothing here for us to decode. What the book is calling us to do, what John is calling us to do, what Scripture is always everywhere calling us to do is to submit ourselves to the guidance of the Holy Spirit, to submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, to rest ourselves in the arms of the Father. And John is doing that in Revelation the same way that Matthew is doing that in his gospel, the same way that Moses is doing that in Genesis. Scripture is calling us to submit ourselves to the lordship of the triune God, not to figure out a secret code so that we can figure out what's going to happen in the stock market next week. The third caveat is that in apocalyptic literature, just because one thing happens after another does not mean that they are happening chronologically after one another. For us as Westerners, when we tell a story, we arrange things in a particular way. Because we want to say this happened, and then this happened, and then this ha- In fact, when people write books, or especially when people make movies, that break up the timeline, that move pieces of the timeline around, it becomes very, very frustrating for us because we like to know here's the beginning, here's the middle, and here's the end. We like to have this, this basic uh, understanding of how a story is going to play out. But this book isn't a book written in the in, in the Western world in the the last half of the second millennium. John doesn't tell stories that way because this book is a collection of reflections and revelations and images and visions that he has received while he is worshiping. We, we need to read this book and encounter this book not as one single solitary outworking. John didn't sit down and then write out this one vision that he had from, from the beginning all the way until the end. We need to think about this as... A dream journal. Think about this as a collection of of poetical works. Think about this as picking up someone else's notebook and reading through it. Now obviously John has gone to extreme pains to tell the story in a particular way, and that's important. We don't want to set that aside, but it's important for us to remember that the arrangement of material in the book of Revelation does not imply chronology. One thing doesn't happen right after another happens, right after another happens. John is encountering images in the midst of his vision, and he conveys those through symbols that he understands and are available to him in the context of his culture and his time. The last caveat is that images are not intended to stand for anything. That's important for us. Because we often will go back and say, Well, I want to figure out who the beast is. I want to figure out who the false prophet is. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we understand that Aslan, the lion, is Jesus. But C.S. Lewis pushed back on the idea that Aslan, in his books, was simply an allegorical figure. He said, In reality, however, he is an invention giving an imaginary answer to the question, What might Christ become like? if there really were a world like Narnia and he chose to become incarnate and die and rise again in that world as he actually has done in ours. It's not allegory at all. And in the same way the images that John uses are not allegorical. The images that John uses are intended to answer this question. If this vision that I have seen were to work itself out in the world that I see with my normal eyes not with my visionary eyes but with my normal eyes what might that look like he's conveying to us images that exist entirely on their own within that story world so the images do not stand for anything they simply are images that are intended for John to convey to us what's happening in the midst of his story world I want to close our discussion today by reading to you the first chapter of John's Revelation. The Revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen i am the alpha and the omega says the lord god who is and who was and who is to come the almighty i john your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in jesus was on the island called patmos on account of the word of god and the testimony of jesus i was in the spirit on the lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. write therefore the things that you have seen those that are and those that are to take place after this as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands the seven stars are angels of the seven churches and seven lampstands are the seven churches this is the word of the lord thanks be to god Thank you again for joining me in our walk through the book of Revelation. You can find more information about St. Aidan's Anglican Church by visiting our website, www.jessamineanglicans.org. If you're looking for further reading, I encourage you to look at the recommended reading list that is attached to this podcast. And I encourage you also to join us again next week as we pause before jumping into the story of Revelation to discuss the idea of the rapture. Where did the idea of the rapture come from? Is it a biblical concept or does it come from somewhere else? And what are we as Anglican Christians to do with this idea of the rapture? So that will be next week. Again, our podcasts in the Apocalypse Revisited come out every Thursday morning. Thank you for joining me. God bless you all. Thank you for checking out Thin Places today. If you were blessed by your time with us and want to know more, check out anchor.fm forward slash thin places for more homilies, devotionals, and worship from St. Aidan's Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. And make sure to follow us and leave a comment and join us again next time in common prayer, common worship, and common life. The peace of the Lord be always with you. Father is restored, hope with our Father is restored.